So I was helping my daughter the other day with a math project. And what she had to do was this. She had to figure out how many times she had to flip a quarter in order for that to land on heads 10 times. And so as we're going through this and I'm helping her track the different flips and tracking how many times it's landing on tails, how many times it's landing on heads. And ultimately, we found out that she had to flip the coin 22 times to get that quarter to land on heads 10 times. And as we're doing this, I started thinking to myself, well, this is just like sales. In fact, as I was going through this project with her, I'm like, this reminds me of the seven rules of selling that have guided me, that have really made the biggest impact in my career of, of selling, of leadership, of content. And I want to share those seven things with you because they've made such a massive impact on my life. And it's my hope that these seven things will have those same impacts on you. So let's jump into it. Number one, yes lives in the land of no. And for a lot of salespeople, obviously they want to try to get as many prospects to say yes, to buy their product, to buy their service, to say yes to the meeting, to say yes, they'd like for you to follow up with them. And they don't want to deal, however, in that process of getting those yeses. They don't want to deal with rejection. I get it. I understand. Been in sales for almost 20 years myself. But the challenge with that is this, that yes lives in the land of no. And simply put, we can't get to yes without hearing no. The same way when we were flipping that quarter over and over and over and over and over again, we couldn't get the quarter to land on heads without it landing on tails. And I was like, this is such a great lesson that I have learned in almost 20 years of selling that, in fact, the more we want to have, the more we want to hear yeses, the more no's we also have to accept. Now, that might seem... Obvious. You might say, uh, dude, uh, hello, of course that's the deal. However, when when I think about this rule or this lesson that yes actually lives in the land of no, that when you get rejection, that when you hear no, that when prospects resist, that when prospects turn you down or whatever the case may be, that you don't look at that maybe the same way you did or at least the same way that I did, versus looking at it to say, well, I have to go through the land of no to get to yes. So I'm, I'm not I'm not allowing the rejection, I'm not allowing the no's to get me down like I feel bad because somebody rejected me. No, this is just part of the process. Matter of fact, whether the quarter landed on heads or tails, it doesn't affect me emotionally. Whether somebody says yes or no, it's both part of the process, which is the point. Number two, the more I invite prospects to say no, the more they say yes. This is so counterintuitive. 
And for most untrained amateur salespeople, people that are new to selling, this is probably the hardest one for them. That the natural way of selling is by trying to persuade people to an agreement. That is like our natural way of influence and persuasion. The problem with that is this, that the more you you try to tell prospects what to do, the more they push back on why they shouldn't. The more you convince, the more you persuade, the more you try to tell the prospect why your product is good for them, why your service is of any value, the more the prospect pushes back. This is called psychological reactance. We've talked a lot about that on the channel. And this is a very simple concept, but for newer salespeople, they don't really understand this, that when you try to convince somebody and somebody feels that sales pressure, when you try to tell somebody what to do, you elicit that psychological reactance and you pull from the prospect all their reasons on why they shouldn't. And if you do the exact opposite, I think what you will find is that prospects resist you a lot less. That when you use language that supports the prospect's autonomy to say yes or no, and you have no bias towards the prospect saying yes, that more prospects will indeed say yes. Because even when something is in somebody's best interest to say yes, I've got this bag of money for you. Let me come over and give it to you. The person still feels resistance. They still want to say no, even if it's in their best interest. This is just innate in our biological makeup, in our psychology of our mind, we just don't want to be pressured to do something when our freedom to make our own choices and our own decisions are being threatened, we push back. Number three, prospecting is a process of disqualifying, not qualifying. So let me get into this. Another massive thing that I think newer salespeople really, really struggle with. They're having conversations with people trying to pull them in closer, trying to persuade them, try to convince them, just like we were talking about. That's a process of qualifying. When you try to pull the prospect in closer to you, what happens often? They pull back. This is the buyer-seller tug-of-war. It's what I call the tug-of-war. It's when you try to qualify somebody into telling them about all the features and all the benefits and all the positive reasons why that prospect should potentially do business with you that they tend to push back. They tend to resist. So the process of disqualifying is the exact opposite. Disqualifying is a process of gently pushing prospects away. That maybe you speak against your own interest in a way where the prospect doesn't perceive you're trying to close the sale. 
And as a result, the prospects who push back on that are the ones who present themselves as real opportunities. Let me give you an example. So a, a process of qualifying might be, you know, Mr. Prospect, when is a, or what does your time frame look like? And, and I'll give you an example in the industry that I serve, which is for real estate agents, real estate sales. So often I'll hear a real estate agent asking prospects, hey, you know, ideally, when do you want to get the property sold? Well, that type of question has a lot of perceived bias. It, it comes across in a way that only benefits the salesperson. And the prospect says, well, what is, what, why does that matter? Why do I have to tell you when I want to sell my house? Oh, because you want to get the listing? Because you want a commission? Because you want to get paid? And when you ask questions, the qualifying questions that a lot of sales trainers, I think, will, will suggest that we ask, it elicits that reactance, you know? And so why are you selling your home? That is a qualifying question that often prospects respond with, none of your business. Mr. Prospect, where are you moving? Qualifying question to which many respond with, none of your business. I don't have to tell you any of that. That's the problem with qualifying questions. A disqualifying question, here's an example of what that could sound like. Mr. Prospect, I'm looking at the property here online. It looks like a beautiful home. Do you absolutely have to sell or have you considered just staying put? Now, this goes against the interest of the real estate agent who's trying to get the listing, right? So the perception isn't that we're trying to close the sale. We're actually going the exact opposite. And now what type of answers can you get from the prospect? Ding, 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 ding. Prospect says, well, yeah, we have considered staying here, but my wife is pregnant. We're having our fourth baby. We need something bigger. It's not an option to, sit, to, to, sell, uh, to stay here. That's the magic of disqualifying. Now prospects feel safe to open up, and they're not even thinking about this consciously, of course. This happens in real time, real fast. And now the prospect is giving you all the reasons on why they want to do something, and they are their own reasons, not yours. Number four, the hidden power of tracking numbers. So as we're Tracking our numbers, I, I, I beg and plead with salespeople to track your numbers on a daily basis. Yes, because it will show you how you're converting. Yes, it will be proof that you're actually making progress. But there's a hidden secret to tracking numbers that I think a lot of people don't consider. And that is this. Tracking your numbers helps you make better decisions. It increases our behavior. It, it puts us in a position where we act and we behave better. Why? Well, because when you're tracking your numbers, okay, we'll just keep this in the context of sales. If you're tracking your numbers, it's pretty painful to put zeros across the board. Zero time prospected, zero conversations, zero dials, zero leads, zero appointments set, zero appointments met, 
zero contract sign. That's pretty painful. Just the act of tracking in, enhances your behavior because when you're doing that, to put those zeros on there, it's very, very painful. So you want to you want not only the proof that you're making progress, but it becomes a game where when you're tracking your numbers and whatever tracking software you're using or, or whatever you're using to track your business, you want that the numbers to be consistent. You want to improve on those numbers on a daily basis. And that to me is the real secret of tracking your numbers. It's just like tracking anything in life. It's like tracking the food that you put in your mouth and I'm tracking every day and I send it to my coach on my fitness pal. If I don't track what I eat, it's a lot more likely that I make bad decisions and eat shittier foods, plain and simple. When I track what I eat, just the simple fact of tracking makes me eat better foods, let alone am I eating enough calories? Am I eating enough protein? Am I eating enough fat carbs? Am I hitting my macro targets? Putting that aside, just the simple fact of logging what I'm eating increases the likelihood that I eat better food. The same thing goes for tracking your spending. Just the mere fact that you're logging every penny that you spend will result in you making better buying decisions. Number five, establishing a baseline conversion helps you to tell the future. So here's what I mean by this. When you start tracking your numbers on a consistent basis, you're going to establish what we call a baseline conversion. As an example, you might find that for every 10 prospects you talk to, you generate one qualified lead. You might find that to be the case. And you might find that for every four qualified leads that you generate results in one face-to-face -face appointment set. You might find that for every two appointments you set, you actually go on one of those appointments. And you might find that every two appointments you go on, you get a signed contract. Now, those ratios only appear through consistent activity over a long period of time. It isn't that you call 10, 10 prospects and you get one lead. No, it's calling thousands of prospects and through thousands of those dials that you establish this baseline conversion. So what's the point? The point is this. Once you've established a average baseline conversion, now you can start to tell the future. You say, okay, I've been tracking my numbers now for six months. I know that I have a 14% contact to lead generated ratio. And so as a result, if I need to generate X amount of leads next month, I know exactly how many conversations I need to have. And, be, and because you've been tracking for six months, you know exactly how long that's going to take. You know exactly how many outbound dials you need to make. And now you're starting to build a predictable business. But salespeople that don't track their numbers, not only do they not have these average baseline conversions, they can't they can't tell the future and therefore they ride the sales roller coaster. They have great months, they have bad months, they don't know why, they don't know what, what what's causing it. 
And they're constantly on this emotional highs and lows. Number six, pipeline maturity is the eighth wonder of sales. We all know Albert Einstein was famous for calling compound interest the eighth wonder of the world. Well, I'm saying pipeline maturity is the eighth wonder of sales. Another thing that new salespeople don't understand until it happens. I've tried to articulate it the best that I can over the last couple of years. I've yet to come up with a good way to explain this. It's, it is like magic. That's why I call it the eighth wonder of sales. Because here's what happens. Let's just say you prospect for two hours per day. And in those two hours, you normally have about 20 conversations. And as a result, you've got a 10% contact to lead generated. That results in you getting two new qualified leads per day that go into the pipeline. Now, here's the thing. Here's the magic. Those two leads that go into your pipeline, you can conceptualize that they don't convert right away. You could sit here on this video and say, yeah, no shit. I get it, Brandon. What, what are you getting at? Well, what, what people often miss is by putting those two leads into your database every single day, five days a week, 240 times per year, a certain percentage of those will convert this year. But what happens next year? As you continue to have two leads that come into the top of the pipeline, in the bottom of the pipeline is conversion that's happening from contacts you made last year. This is how we see real estate agents or other sales professionals double their business in their second year. And the same thing happened in the third year. And the same thing happened in the fourth year. And in the fifth year of somebody doing this on a consistent basis, you see unbelievable results. As an example, in real estate sales, this is when we see agents sell 20 houses their first year from having 20 conversations per year or 20 conversations per day, rather, then seeing that same agent not work any harder in year two, sell 40 houses. And then in year three, not work any harder, sell 60 houses. In year four, not work any harder, sell 80 houses. And in their fifth year, they're still only prospecting two hours per day, and they can sell 100 houses a year. Why? because of pipeline maturity. That leads that they put into their pipeline in their first year might not manifest until their fifth year. And all the conversion that's happening over year, over year, over year, over year, that's the compound effect of pipeline maturity. Number seven, we don't have to like prospecting. We just have to do it. And this took me a long, long time to really accept that I thought there has to be an easier way. There has to be a, you know, something different that these top producers are doing that I just don't know about. And all that I found over the years is that the difference between top producers and low producers, it isn't that they one likes prospecting and one doesn't. No, both don't like prospecting. The top producers do it anyways. That if you were to shadow me or any other top producer in, in whatever industry in sales, you might think that you're going to see something magical, and the only magic that you end up seeing is how disciplined and how focused that salesperson is. That would be the only secret you would see. You wouldn't see any fancy 
sexy nothing. You would see somebody who is disciplined and focused. And it's unfortunate that those two things are the difference makers. It isn't some secret strategy that you've never heard of. No, it's the fact that people have their head down, they're focused, they practice discipline on a daily basis, and they prospect every day, even on the days they don't feel like it. Because prospecting is paying the price today for what we want in the future.